Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. And don't forget to send us in your questions so we can spend uh, the last Friday of every month taking some time answering those questions. Uh, where to send them into? Glad you asked that. You can send them into info at grove.church, simple email, or you can direct message our Facebook page. Uh, and while you're there, if you haven't liked our Facebook page as a Grove Church here in Marysville and Snohomish, you totally should. Uh, but we look forward to answering those questions that you send in this month. Absolutely. So kicking it off this week, uh, we're going to be finishing up the book of Jeremiah. Um, this week, if I'm not mistaken, I think we're reading... Um, like over 20 chapters. That's so a huge chunk of reading. We are powering through, uh, starting in chapter 30 and ending in chapter uh, 52. Get and, ready. And actually, what I what I wanted to highlight this week was the very end of our readings. And so, um, there's a lot of prophecy, but I think we've talked kind of a bit about like you know what Jeremiah is doing. We've talked a little bit about the structure of it. Um, last week, last week you highlighted a lot of the prophetic parts. Um, I actually want to talk about the epilogue at the end of Jeremiah. You have this fascination with ending. I do. The endings of books that we're reading. I think it's just... Uh, and Evan's the one that selects who gets to highlight what. And I swear he hi- takes all the fun highlights for the epilogue type reading. I mean, if you want to highlight an epilogue... Nope, I don't can. want to anymore because it's, it's, it's Evan's role. It's, it's Evan calls dibs. That's what I just think it's like, to. you know, like any good, um, <laughs> like any good story, uh, the way it ends is kind of... I don't know. That's the journey of the book. The whole thing is leading up to... Uh, the ending. And obviously, like, you can look at the whole Bible that way in that you have, um, you know, it starts off really good and then you have the fall into sin and then it's all kind of building up to this moment where there's redemption and then eventually later on, um, there's kind of this final redemption and final renewal. And so, I don't know, I think there's just something to be said about... It's very poetic. Yeah, focusing and on Evan's the And Evan's a very poetic person if it's you haven't true. caught that on the podcast. Roses are red. <laughs> he loves the poetry, poetry of the Bible. But That's why Ecclesiastes is his favorite book. Ecclesiastes is a great Total book. Total tangent side note, but you're welcome. Yeah, there you go. Um, but anyway, so at the end of Jeremiah, um, it actually says, I think at the end of verse, uh, at the end of chapter 50, I believe is where it says this, it goes... Um, Thus ends the words of Jeremiah, or some translations, uh, thus basically like, it's over now. That, that's not actually what it says in the translations. The end. The end. So, Almost. Um, and so from what we can gather, we would say that Jeremiah wrote, um, or at least he said these things and they were written down about the period when Jeremiah um, was doing ministry. And then this other portion is added on later, probably during the exile to kind of help uh, the readers of Jeremiah understand when all of this was taking place. And so the prophecies of Jeremiah end. And then we get this epilogue that's actually really similar to what we get in Second Kings when we read about uh, Jerusalem falling and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah falling. But it's it's really kind of um, this sad ending to the book of Jeremiah, who is uh, you know called the weeping prophet for a reason. Um, and so the end of the ending two chapters of this book they recount the destruction of Jerusalem, and then I would say um, more importantly, or at least just as importantly, uh, the burning of the temple. And this is really kind of a a symbolic showing that the reign of the Davidic king, kings was over. Yeah. And so you get remember you have King David starts this dynasty that lasts hundreds of years. Um, Solomon, his son, builds the temple. So for almost the entire reign of the Davidic dynasty. 
the temple has been there. Only one king, and ironically, it was David, uh, is only one king is king when the temple is not around. Um, Solomon builds it. And then even when the people of Israel and Judah are turning away from God, there is always the temple. Mm-hmm. And when you see kings like Hezekiah and Josiah and the other good kings who are actually you know turning the people's hearts back, back towards God, the temple plays a huge part a huge part in that. That's where things take place. And then when Babylon comes through, uh, this temple is destroyed. And so, fun fact, I guess, not really a fun fact, I suppose, but yeah, so when we're in the New Testament, you'll hear Jesus talking about um, the temple. Well, that's not the same temple. So, the, Sol- the Solomon- Solomonic temple, I'm just I'm going to go with that. Yeah, it sounds great. The Temple of Solomon well done, uh, was destroyed here. Um, and then later on, uh, Herod actually builds a temple. And that is the temple that we get mm-hmm. um, in the New Testament. That's the temple that is um, eventually destroyed by the Romans. So, not not a good not a good record for the temples here. Nope. But that is what's going on. Uh, the temple is destroyed. Um, and honestly, this is a major moment in the history of of Israel. Uh, They would lose the Temple of Solomon, the reign of the Davidic kings would be over, and finally the people of Israel are sent into exile, uh, which is where we're going to be spending the next major chunk of the Old Testament. And so, um, as you'll see, the Old Testament doesn't end with them in exile. They do come back, and that's where we'll get into Ezra and Nehemiah and a lot of those stories. But for our next um, good chunk of the Old Testament readings, they're going to be not in Israel, not in Judah. They're going to be in exile. They're going to be going into exile. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the Old Testament is kind of concerned with, or a lot of the rest of the story is concerned with how they get back, mm-hmm. um, or in the case of Esther, how they're protected when they're not back. So, you know, I, don't, I would say spoilers, but I feel like everyone kind of knows the story of Esther. Too late. Too late. Yeah. But yeah, that's where we're at in the book of Jeremiah. Well, I think it's always a great, even to take a step back and look at the the big picture of scripture. And even even though I kind of, you know, mess with Evan a little bit about the whole epilogue and the the poetic nature of of even but I, it would be a redemption of grace and uh even as we re step into this season of exile for God's people the redemption and the calling back I think is so beautiful and so uh be be aware of that it's we lose that in uh a straight reading from the the Bible in Genesis through I think it's Zephaniah or whatever that last book, Malachi or whatever that last book of the Old Testament is. I can't remember off the top of my head, It's but it's there. Um, but we lose that just with the straight reading. So that's what I love about this chronological reading. So anyways, uh, we're continuing in Romans as well this week. Uh, obviously, last week we kind of launched into uh, this book that even as we said, uh, in essence, in short, Paul is laying the groundwork. He's laying the entire gospel out to the Romans uh, from start to finish. It's people who have maybe heard about Jesus, but they didn't understand this whole conversation. So he's continuing to do that here as we read through chapters uh, 7 through 13 this week. Uh, And just a few thoughts up to this point as we get uh, into chapter 7, really into chapter 8, which is a pretty big chunk uh, of uh, kind of Romans and the heart of the gospel and the heart of Romans. Uh, We're going to find, especially in chapter 8, that Paul is going to make it uh, very clear that God's saving promises have been fulfilled in the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles are those individuals who are not Israelites or Jews. They are uh, outside of God's quote-unquote elect people. Um, but Paul's making the statement. He's, he's helping uh, bring the Romans along to understand this picture of the gospel, uh, that the promises that God has made have been fulfilled for the Gentiles. Uh, and, and now the church 
uh, gets to enjoy these spiritual blessings. He talks about the gift of the Spirit being poured out to believers. He talks about the adoption as God's children. He talks about their future glory in eternity and because of Christ. He talks about their election uh, and being selected to be God's people uh, and that these promises, uh, uh, the promise of never being severed from God's love, um, these are the promises that he refers to that are fulfilled among the Gentiles. But he starts to pivot in in the next couple chapters, in chapters 9 through 11, where he just simply asks the question, if the promises, uh, are they going to be fulfilled to Israel? Uh, because what he's doing is he's setting up an argument, obviously. He's setting up a, a, a stance and a position uh, where he's just challenging and, and and helping the Roman people understand how all people, God is working for salvation. He's working to redeem all of humanity. Uh, and he just makes a statement that if the Jew, if the promise to the Jews remains unfulfilled, then how can the Gentile Christians be sure that he will fulfill his promises to Israel? Uh, and he sets up this question, and then he spends time answering it, where he just real, uh, brings revelation to the fact that God will ultimately save his people. He will he will, is faithful to his promises, and will ultimately save his people. Um, and there's this interesting dialogue that happens. Well, not maybe not dialogue because it's more Paul writing, but I, I believe it creates an interesting dialogue in Romans chapter 11. I just want to read a few verses for us, uh, verses 11 to 18, because I think it's pretty. Um, Paul creates this contrast and this almost inclusiveness, if you will. Uh, And so it says this, it says, I ask, Paul's writing to the Romans, I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? He's talking about the Jewish Israelite people um, who have been chosen. They are what they would call the elect. They are God's people. uh, And they had fallen. They had hard hearts and they decided not to listen. Uh, And so he says this, have they stumbled so as to fall? He says, absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, in other words, their rejection of salvation, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. It's kind of a funny picture that God would use uh, people who are not a part of the family to make his family, his, his chosen people jealous. It says, now if their transgression excuse me, brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles insofar as I'm apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now if the first roots are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now if some branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among, among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, Do not boast that you are better than those branches, but if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. And so it's just this incredible challenge and picture of the fact that what what happened with the Israelites in their rejection of God, their hard-heartedness, their resistance to respond to Jesus and the grace that he presented actually opened the door for the Gentiles to be included because God's heart is to redeem his people. And so God leveraged the Gentile responses, those outside of the family of God originally, invited them into the family. This is this grafted branch into a tree, invited them in so that there would be a response and a surrender and a repentance of his people. Because his heart at the end of the day is to save all people. It's not a specific one or this or this, you have to be this, this, and this. It's God's people. We are his people. So it's an interesting tension that we see play out in some respects, like my salvation not being of Jewish Jewish descent is to make those of Jewish descent jealous so that they would return to God. And it's funny how we sometimes get stuck in this arrogance of I'm better than you. 
Uh, I'm part of the family and you're not neener neener, as my little two-year-old would say. You can't catch me. But I just think it's such an interesting tension that as Paul is trying to lay out this argument and lay out this platform and foundation of the gospel, that he reminds you and I today, whether you're listening and you are in Jewish descent or you're not, that at the end of the day, God's heart is to redeem humanity. And he leverages people to glorify his name and fulfill his purposes. And it's almost an invitation for you and I today to be responding in grace because we get to boast that where we don't sustain the root, the root sustains us. Because of Christ, we get to enjoy and also draw people and invite people into God's family. Uh, and he uses our stories. He uses our backgrounds, our family. I love the statement, nothing is wasted, but it just comes to this point, I think, in Romans 11, where we are wrestling with this tension because God's heart, again, is to redeem humanity because he's faithful to the fulfill his promises. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a quick uh, quick correction from something Uh-oh. I said. I know. Uh-oh. So I thought you were correcting me. I was no, 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 to, my correction. I was so, ready to just walk out. So here's the thing. As soon as I said the second temple was built by Herod the Great, and then I mentioned Ezra and Nehemiah, I was like, wait, that doesn't check out. And so while you were talking- Liar! No, I looked it up. I lied to all of you. And um, see, I was looking for that transition point so that I didn't, I didn't even pay attention to that. My, see, that's my bad. Um, but here's the deal. So in the book of Ezra, uh, the temple is rebuilt, or at least it's uh, given- uh, commission to be rebuilt. What I had in my head was that around uh, 20 BC, Herod the Great remodels the temple and it's referred to as the temple of Herod. So that's what happened. But that temple um, is not a new temple. It's the it's same rebuilt. temple. Yeah. So second temple built around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's that's my bad, everyone. I didn't mean to lead you astray there. So hopefully you didn't pause the podcast Heresy. and then start posting. Heresy. <laughs> Um, but moving on. Listen, so, we're human and make mistakes. That is uh, very true. And I have a lot of trust in Evan. So now I've just lost some trust. Yeah, you should, uh, you know, always, uh, I forgot what the thing is that Paul says, but test my words, basically. Um, okay, so we're getting into the book of Ezekiel this week. Uh, and Ezekiel uh, is a unique prophet in that he is the uh, the first of the, especially the major prophets, whose uh, ministry begins in exile. And so Jeremiah has a little bit of both, uh, and but Ezekiel is his whole ministry takes place after uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the book is really a testament to the grace of God that even while his people are in exile, he still reaches out to them. And I think sometimes when we um, just have a basic overview of the Bible, but we're not thinking through um, all of the specific books, we can kind of view the exile as like, well, God's done with the people of Israel now, and then they just go away, and then eventually Jesus comes. Um, But we don't realize that a lot of the Old Testament takes place during the exile or immediately following the exile. And and what the, what those moments are is it's God showing his faithfulness to his people. He's showing them forgiveness. He's showing them redemption, um, even in the midst of punishment for the way that they've acted. And we get beautiful stories. We get the book of Ezekiel and Daniel and Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. I mean, there's just some great Malachi's in there as well. Malachi. Um, Mama Malachi. But there's Shout just... out to Jamie Bigby. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's, there's just great stories of God's faithfulness that go on all throughout the period of the exile. So in the book of Ezekiel, um, it's, it's one of those interesting books because I think there's a couple famous passages from it, but it's not one of those books where I would say, um, probably not many of us have read it before. And so we're going to go through it. Um, but it's, it's going to be really great. There's three visions in the book. Um, not that the whole book is not three visions, but there's three separate visions that kind of help, um, to move on to different parts of the book. The first vision is of Ezekiel as God calling Ezekiel into ministry. So this is a, uh, 
a really common thing, uh, especially with the major prophets, where you'll get their calls to ministry. Isaiah 6, for instance, is one of my favorite passages uh, of Scripture. Jeremiah, we see his call to ministry. Ezekiel, we see his, his call to ministry. Uh, he eats a scroll. So that's, you know, cool. Yes, he does. Uh, yes. That's, uh, Don't go try it, but. And honestly, not the weirdest thing that's happened to one of the prophets. And so. that's even more so true. So, uh, but that, that go, that, that's what happens. Uh, the second vision is uh, Ezekiel basically sees God's glory depart from Jerusalem. And then in the third, he sees God's glory return to Jerusalem. And this is where I said, probably the most famous Ezekiel passage is uh, the Valley of the Dry Bones. Chapter 37. This is part of that whole deal where, um, you know, maybe the people of Israel are thinking to themselves, they've been left for dead by their Lord, um, much like a Valley of Dry Bones, but all of a sudden, you know, there's there's life. And there's some Christian there's song a, that I can't remember how it goes right now. It's like, oh, it's uh, off the new song album. Is that the one you're? Is that what to? it was? Like a call out to drive. Is come alive. Is that what it is? I think so. Yeah. I don't know. It's the newest Hill song album. Awake. All I know is every time I songs. play Mario Party, uh, Tim Martin plays his dry bones, and then he just sings that song over and over again. So I know all of you out there need to know that. So there you go. Because uh, they definitely know who Tim Martin is. That's true. He's my friend. Uh, anyway, like so many of the prophetic books, uh, the structure comes down to uh, God's judgment on his people. So verses are, sorry, not verses, chapters 1 through 24, you're kind of going to see God's judgment on Israel, his judgment on Judah, his judgment on uh, Jerusalem in particular, all these different things are happening. Um, and then you see God's judgment on the nations in verses, tw- uh, ch- holy cow, chapters 25 through 32. Um, and then finally, God's promise of restoration in chapters 33 through 48. Um, and You'll notice that that is a theme through not all, but a lot of the prophetic books where God will announce judgment on his own people. And then it'll kind of be like, well, wait, what about all these other nations? And then God's like, let me get to that. Here's my judgment on all the other nations. And then the the prophet's kind of like, okay, okay. And then God will say like, and here is the coming redemption for my people if you will come back to me. And that's kind of the structure that Ezekiel follows. Um, Again, like all of the prophetic books, there's a lot of poetry in there. It's a lot of symbolic talking. but I think the visions in particular are really powerful books of Ezekiel. So, mm-hmm. are really powerful sections of Ezekiel, I should say, um, that that are just that are just great to read. And also, just remember the overall message. And, and keep in mind as you're reading Ezekiel, um, try and put yourself into the situation of the people who were hearing these things. These are people who had just lost. Um, I mean, everything. Their nation was taken away. The temple was destroyed, which for a for a Jew at this time, that was, I mean, that was a major mm-hmm. thing. The idea was that Jerusalem was protected by God, which it was, um, and would never fall. But God removed his his glory from Jerusalem, basically, and allowed yeah. allowed uh, terrible things to happen. So, um, and just remember what you just read in Ezra or Jeremiah too. Yeah, like that's that's literally what's happening. That's, yeah, that's what that's the context with which they're walking in. Uh, that Ezekiel stepping into ministry and so yeah so it always help I think it always helps to try and keep the context in mind as you're reading yeah um, but that's kind of the basic structure of how Ezekiel goes uh, next week we'll dive more into uh, specific passages from the book yeah get ready it's 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 another book like a, and even Evan said it Evan even said not even Evan said whatever anyways they both work uh, that. Uh, it is a it is a very poetic book, so it means again just a reminder because I have to remind myself this. Slow down and reading some of it so you can pick up what's actually going on there. So uh, this week we're also jumping in and starting the book of Colossians, uh, which is one of the epistles written by Paul. Uh, we spent some time through the book of Acts to hear about Paul, uh, his journey, his uh, conversion, and his encounter with Christ, and now becoming an, a major player in the movement of the church. Uh, he is writing this letter to the church of Colossae. 
Uh, and he's actually writing it while he's in prison. Uh, and it's, it's, it seems to be written about the same time he wrote Philemon and Ephesians. Uh, one thing I didn't realize about this letter was that uh, Colossae got its start during Paul's ministry. Uh, three years he spent time ministering to Ephesus. Uh, and this is where this church was, was born and was birthed from. Uh, so it was kind of fitting that he would uh, write a letter to the, uh, the Colossians at about the same time as the Ephesians, um, because I'm sure there was some correlation there. There was some connection of like, as he's thinking about the Ephesians, Colossae comes up to play too. Uh, he's also writing to establish Christ uh, and his preeminence throughout creation, throughout the world order as we understand it, uh, and as that foundational strength and source of hope and salvation for us. Um, and so it's Paul just trying to help keep the gospel moving forward and not being hindered uh, by false teachings or heresy or even uh, persecution. So um, he makes a statement. I want to read this and then uh, share a thought or two. Uh, out of Colossians 1, verses 15 to 21, this is kind of the meat of, of the foundation. He's kind of a, almost if you're like the opening paragraph which he's trying to get at and help lay the foundations uh, for us. It says this in verse 15, it says, he referring to Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him, all things hold together. Uh, if you've seen a video called about laminin by Louis Giglio, that would, that always rings true in my head when I read this. Uh, laminin, you can just look it up, Google it, you'll see the image and why why it's kind of cool. Uh, he holds all things together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, so that he might be he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. It's a pretty powerful statement. Uh, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. And he continues to go on and kind of work through this is who we once were, this is how we once lived and act according to evil actions. He kind of breaks that down a little bit more. Uh, but I just think it's important to, as Paul is making this foundational stand, he's drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is who Christ is, the invisible image of God, or he's the visible image of an invisible God. Um, and, and I've heard someone say before, if you want to know who and what God was like, read the gospels and understand who Jesus is and was. Um, and then he says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is the, 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 the tension or the, I don't know if dichotomy is the right word. Um, but the stance of, Understanding God as fully man, but also fully God. There is this duality of who Jesus is and the fullness of everything God was dwelt in Jesus, the person of Jesus, and Jesus walked and lived this earth fully man. Um, and so this is just that foundational, this Jesus is above, he is first in everything. There's nobody that is ahead of him. He is first in everything. Uh, and so for us today, as we talk about, and even in the world we live in, where there are the arguments about the Bible and the arguments about um, faith in Christ or some other religious perspective, uh, we have to continue to remember Jesus is the foundational piece uh, of our faith and why we believe what we believe. Um, he is the son of God. He was the first in everything. He, he was there at creation. 
He was there walking in creation. He was, he's there after creation. God, Jesus was in the midst of all these things. And so Paul's just laying down that foundation. He's getting ready to launch into the next few chapters in more depth and detail about how does this impact our lives and how do we live in a response to it as he's continuing to challenge and encourage the Colossians and their faith. By the way, if you want a fun fact, uh, I love fun facts. The theological term for Jesus being fully God and fully man is the hypostatic union. So I don't even know if I knew that. Really? They didn't oh. teach that to me in Bible school. I couldn't come rem- on Northwest. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I couldn't remember it. So I was like, I was like, I know there's a word for it. So I looked it up. But yeah. Hypostatic union. If you so. can use that three times this week, Evan will buy you a sticker. I think that, that I can confirm that if you can not force it, if you can naturally use it three times, I'll just has to come up in conversation. There you go. Uh, but that, that we're going to go ahead and wrap it up there uh, for this episode of let's read the Bible. Uh, thank you all for listening. I just want to quick remind you uh, that this is a podcast of the Grove Church, but not the only podcast of the Grove Church. You can check out all of our other podcasts and resources on our website at grove.church. Um, and also do us a favor, leave a five-star review on whatever uh, app you're listening on. It just helps get the word out there. Yeah, it helps grow the show um, and continue to grow this community of people reading the Bible together. And with that being said, we will see you all next week.